If you would, please take your seats and turn with me in your copy of the Word of God again to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Pick up a reading in verse 3. This is God's Word. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Amen. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God this morning. Well, King Charles III, I keep wanting to call him Prince Charles, but King Charles III is a famously picky guest. When he's staying at someone's home, if you're entertaining him, you can expect his entourage to arrive the day before and remove his bed, from his bedroom all of your furniture and replace it with his furniture, including his bed, an orthopedic bed for his back, and two of his own pictures from the Scottish Lowlands paintings he likes having in the room he's staying in. So he'll take your paintings off the wall and put his paintings up um, in their place. He's also quite insistent he will not use his own toilet seat. His shoelaces must be pressed flat every morning by his valet. His PJs must be pressed and cleaned every every night. His bath water must be exactly the right temperature, not no warmer than tepid. <laughs> um, before dinner, he insists on drinking his own pre-mixed perfect martini in his own glass. He likes the idea of drinking from a glass that nobody else, no hoi polloi people, have ever touched or drunk from. He drinks from his own glass before dinner. And when he brushes his teeth in the morning, he insists on his valet putting exactly one inch of toothpaste on his brush. He won't even squeeze his own toothpaste paste, toothpaste tube. Here's a king who knows how a king is to be treated, a king who stands on his rights, who holds his dignity with a tight fist. And in that sense, who can complain? He is, after all, the king of England, and kings do what kings do. Well, in our text this morning, we see another king whose attitude could not have been more different. Instead of demanding his rights, he let them go. Instead of holding on to his dignity, he gave it up. Even though he was in the form of God from all eternity, last week we saw this, you remember, the form of God, the exact size and shape a thing must be to be that thing, He was in the form of God, the exact size and shape of God, and didn't feel that equalities with God, the divine characteristics, were something he had to hold on to. He already had them. He he didn't grasp them, though, in a tight fist. And without ceasing to be what he'd always been, Christ became something he'd never been before. He became a creature, a mammal. 
a human being. And he came to live an ordinary life, not the ordinary life of a prince, but the life of a pauper. And he refused, you remember, to stand out from the crowd. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, the, the crowd of men, the plurality of men. And in that crowd, he looked, well, ordinary. Looking at him, as Paul said, made in the likeness of sinful flesh, there was nothing about his appearance that would have led you to conclude that he was anything more than just an ordinary sinner. He didn't look sinless, though he was. He looked ordinary, like the rest of us. That was his mindset in eternity as he made himself nothing and emptied himself not by losing but by taking by plastering over the form of God in the form of a a slave as he came to live the life of servitude. That was his mindset in eternity. And it's impossible for me to find words to describe the, the condescension of Jesus Christ to go from the form of God to the form of a servant. Less shocking for an angel, an archangel, to exchange the form of an angel for the form of a cockroach. That's just one creature exchanging its creaturehood for another form of creaturehood, but Christ the Creator to become a creature in the form of a servant made under the law and that in low condition. You could spend a billion years with the tongues of a thousand angels and you couldn't describe his, his, his humility, his dignity, his beauty with, in a way that would be fitting. Well, this morning in our sermon, we see Jesus take an additional step down, a step of humiliation in which He would choose not just a human life, but the human life of the scapegoat, the cosmic trash can into which the sins of a lost universe would be piled, all of the iniquity, all of the transgression, all of the sin and all of the blame for it all will be placed upon him. With such legal precision that he would no longer see himself as the Son of God, but would see himself only as the sin of the world. And I want you to consider that with me this morning, the humility of the man Christ Jesus. First of all, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, Paul said. He humbled himself. The word to humble in Greek, or this particular word, means to reach beneath yourself, to live a life beneath yourself. It's the word used by Jesus to describe the actions of the feast of a friend who deliberately chose a seat nobody else would have chosen for him, not even the host. He chose not the best seat where the host would have put him, but he chose the worst seat. He he, he chose a seat that was beneath his dignity as the host's best friend. And of course, Christ was contrasting in that our terrible penchant, our ugly, ugly, ugly characters that we perpetually 
wanting great things for ourselves, and envying those who have more prominence than we do, who have a better seat than we have, and we think we deserve it and they don't, and we envy them and we get jealous of them. We overestimate ourselves constantly. Even in our home, we say to our wives or our husbands, how dare you speak to me that way? But Jesus went in the opposite direction. He humbled himself and chose the lower place. And Paul here is describing Jesus humbling himself, taking the step of obedience. Now, think about it in yourself. Jesus here, Paul here is not describing Christ obeying the law, right? It, he's not describing the humility that it took for Christ, the lawgiver, to suddenly become the law keeper. He's already described that as the self-emptying of God becoming a creature in the previous verses. Now, in verse 8, he's speaking about Jesus in human, in, in His humanity, being found in human form. He humbled Himself. He's not describing Christ's humility in obeying the law. Once He became a man, that choice was taken away from Him. He had no choice but to obey the law, and He deserved no thanks for it. As a creature, that's what creatures do. It was not beneath Him to obey the law. To err is not human. To obey is human. And once Christ became man, He deserved no thanks for personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. It was simply the life He ought to have lived. So, Paul here is not describing Christ's obedience to the Father's law. He's describing Christ's obedience to the Father's mission, that He reached beneath Himself and be willing to expend Himself in the life of substitution. He wouldn't just live and obey the law for Himself, but He would obey the law for you. And at the end of His life, He wouldn't just continue living as He ought to have done, but he'd reach beneath himself and die in your place and for your sins. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what Paul here is describing here is the humility of Christ's kind of first Gethsemane-like moment as his messianic consciousness progressively dawned upon him as he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, as his mind grew, his self-understanding grew, the understanding of God grew in his human mind, and he, and he had to reckon with what it would be for him to become the sin of the world. And in that moment, as it were, as his father would say to him, will you have this woman to be your wedded husband? Jesus said, I do. Not my will, Father, but thy will be done. And it took enormous humility for Christ to embrace the life of the sin-bearer, to become, as Isaiah called him, the man of sorrows, not just the man of sorrow. I'm a man of constant sorrow, the, the, the country western song sings, but 
No, he was the man of sorrows in plurality, as one commentator said, as if all of the sorrows of the world had coalesced on Christ's head and become his very own, which, of course, they had. Think about being the blame-bearer. None of us like to be blamed for things. When we're late, it's not our fault. It was the traffic. It was a phone call. It was somebody else. It wasn't us. When we forget an important engagement, it wasn't that we forgot to put it in our daytimer. No, they forgot to tell us the time properly. It was their fault, not mine. We have a thousand ways of wriggling out from the blame. I didn't lose my temper. No, you made me angry. But behind that desire to wriggle out from the blame is the neurotic understanding, the true sense, not neurotic in the sense that the, the, the neurosis, the fear that we really are to blame that it really is our, all our own fault. And every so often, in small things and in big, we come face to face with it. An errant child, maybe, and in a moment of madness, the wife turns to her husband and says, it's your fault. You weren't a good enough father. Well, the father turns to his wife, it was your fault. You were always nagging him when he was growing up and driving him away. And the pain of that, the pain of that, unbearable. We'll do anything as human beings other than to be blamed for something. It's a terrible thing to feel the blame. And Jesus humbled Himself to bear the blame of all the evil, of billions of lifetimes of sin. Can you imagine it? When his father said, who's responsible for all this mess? Jesus said, Father, I'm responsible. Picture in your mind's eye a feast and chairs, a billion chairs, a lot of chairs. A billion chairs takes a line of 312,000 miles for each chairs, 18 inches wide further than the eye can see. If you stand at the beach and you're five foot seven, the horizon is 3.1 miles away. To get to the end of the line of chairs, you've got to cross the horizon 100,000 times. It's like 12 times around the earth. And the first chair is the most worthy human life that's ever lived. Who would dare suggest that chair doesn't belong to Jesus? That's the first chair. At the end of the list, cross the horizon 100,000 times, and you get to the end, the last chair, the, the least worthy human being has ever lived. And Paul says, Jesus humbled himself and walked all the way to the end of the line 
and took the seat on the least worthy chair. The one who's to blame worse than Hitler and Mussolini and Genghis Khan and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi and President Z, the, the, the worst of all humanity. Jesus sits on that seat. He humbled himself. He humbled himself. Now become obedient to the Father's mission to save you. He humbled himself, Paul says, more by becoming obedient to the point of death. The point of death. No human being should ever have to die. We all know that. You stand at a funeral. Whether you're a Christian or not, and your heart rises up and fades you, God has written eternity in all of our hearts, and we think, this should not be so. This person I knew and loved should not be dead now. It's grotesque. It's horrendous. Death. No human being should ever have to die. And yet death is the peculiar destiny of a particular type of life. The life of a sinner. Paul says the wages of sin is death. In the universe, in God's just universe, only one type of person dies. A sinner. It would be The universe would be a vast hell of horror if the wrath of God could fall upon a place where it did not deserve, was not deserved. Death. It's the process of decreation. Remember, an Adam was made, he was a pile of dust formed into the shape of a body, and then God knelt down beside the pile of dust and put his mouth over Adam's mouth and breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living soul. In that moment, Adam opened his eyes, alive, in the face of God. There's nowhere else to live than in the face of God. Nowhere else you can live than in the face of God. Only in the life-giving presence of the living God, the Father of spirits, can the human spirit properly live. And there was, a, and there, was a, there was a sober warning even in that most intimate of moments. Adam, if you ever walk away from me, you're walking away from life. You're walking away from the one thing, the one person who makes you more than a pile of dust. And when Adam did, that's what he became again. Remember, God said, from dust you were created, and to dust you shall return. In the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And in the day Adam ate, he did die in his soul. He ripped his soul out of the presence of God, and his soul died, and his body began to die. That's why our bodies are dying. They're catching up with our souls by nature. We are, as I've said before, it bears repeating, dead souls in dying bodies. When Adam chose to sin, he chose to die. 
He moved out of the only place where life could be had and life could be enjoyed. And as we eke out our existence in this earth, as our body catches up with our souls, there comes a moment when our soul is torn apart from our body. Our body dies, and God Himself rips our soul, like ripping a page out of a, out of a refill pad. He, he rips the soul. In fact, all of the pages out of a book, He rips the soul, the person we are, out of our body, and what's left behind is a lifeless husk. And it's amazing how fast that lifeless body loses its warmth, and, and it, it, it seems like an empty shell. It's a cold, yellow corpse. And the soul is torn out and taken away. And the Bible calls that moment the first death. But there's another step even beyond the first death, and that is not just our soul being torn out of our body, but our soul being cast out of God's presence forever. The Bible calls that the second death. Death in all of its concentrated horror. Now, if you're here this morning, maybe a covenant child who's resisting the gospel, the thought of being cast out of God's presence forever might actually fill your soul with hope. You hate God. You hate, you know, you hate it when your mom and dad tell you about the gospel and preach the gospel. You think, stop preaching to me, dad, again, you know. And you think it's them. It's not them, though. It's your, it's your, that animosity to the Christian message, that resentment of being dragged to church week in and week out to worship God is a, is a picture of your heart's true posture toward God. You hate Him, and by rights, He should hate you too. The Lord hates all who do iniquity, the Bible says. That's His natural posture towards people like you and me. He hates all who do iniquity, Psalm 5. But you hate Him. <coughs> and so the thought of being apart from God to you, he thinks, not too bad. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good deal. But again, you forget, my brother and my sister, that there is no life to be had outside of God. Physical life, but emotional life, psychological life, enjoyable life. Everything that makes life bearable, the satisfaction of a job well done, the cool breeze on a hot day, a warm blanket in a cold night, a dry house in the middle of a terrible rainstorm. When you run from your car to your garage and you get out of the rain and it's, it's freezing you to your bone and you run into the garage and it's warm, the beginnings of warmth and it's dry and you think, oh, praise God. Oh, there I said it. <laughs> no, I'm, not, I'm not out in the rain anymore, right? And the, the, the hug of a mother or a father at bedtime the kiss on your cheek of a wife who loves you or a husband who loves you, the joys of friendship, good warm food on a cold night, a hot bowl of, of chicken soup when you're sick. All of these things are the blessings of God. But when He takes your soul away from Him for the last time, He'll not just be taking your soul away from Him. He'd be taking your soul away from all of His gifts as well. And you'd be left alone by yourself. The company of 
wicked and damned men and demons forever. And there, there your psychology will progressively unravel. You know, we've all been sin has alienated us just a little bit in this world from creation. Our, our work is frustrating. The garden is always bringing forth thorns and thistles. It separates us from our, our other people. Our relationships are difficult, right? It, 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 it separates us from God, of course, and also from ourselves. We are insecure. We fear that we're not enough. We're inadequate. But God's common grace at the moment, holds all those things back and protects us from those things to large measure. But when in the final analysis in the second death, God's grace will be taken away, and the full storm of alienation and loneliness and, and our own hatefulness will be unleashed. Then we will be hateful, and we will hate one another. We will hate the demons and the souls of those around us, and they will hate us. And we will progressively unravel and sink into our own into our self-centered loathsomeness, blaming everybody else for all of our own problems, but deep down we all know that we have no one else to blame but ourselves, and will be cast off from God forever. That's the second death. And Jesus became obedient to the point of death the point of death, the, 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 the climax of death. It wasn't just physical death he endured, but it was the spiritual death too in the darkness of the outer blackness of Golgotha as he's been cast off by God as the trash of the universe, and God is treating him only as sin and no longer as son. But the first time, Jesus never cries, Father, Abba, but my God. He's lost all sense of himself as son and feels himself only to be sin, not just bearing sin, but he's become sin in the darkness, and all he's left with is the unanswered question of why. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was obedient to the point of death, to the zenith of death, the, the climax of death. And in that final moment then, when hell was finished, he laid his life down. Remember he says in John 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ didn't die the way you and I die. We die when our strength is finally gone, and we can no longer sustain the, the union between the Spirit and the flesh, and God tears the one away from the other. But Jesus would never have died had He not, as John Murray said, taken His humanity in one hand and His human spirit in the other hand, and by dent of His own will, tore the one from the other in a moment of climactic triumph. With a loud voice, Christ gave up the ghost. He wasn't exhausted. He, he was still in possession of his strength, and he tears it when sin had been paid for. After he'd satisfied the full eternal rigors of the second death, he tore apart soul and body in the first death and went home to God with the 
dying thief in track and train with all the joy of a father on his way home, of a little boy running home at Christmas for the holidays. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. It's the, it's the life, the Via Dolorosa, the Calvary road that Christ reached beneath himself to embrace that life. But then Paul steals himself one last time to describe an additional unspeakable. He has to, he has to, you, have to, you almost get the sense of Paul stealing himself even to say the words to the point of death even the death of the cross. Why the cross? Such an unspeakable thing. And there are two reasons, I think, we'll end our sermon here this morning. The cross, first of all, provided a fit venue for men to show what they really thought of God. There was no death more deliberately degrading and obscene, no form of punishment more evil and sadistic, a form of execution in which man gave full vent to his demonic cruelty than the cross. Stripped naked, hung on the cross, where you normally would die, it would take hours, if not days, to die, a slow, agonizing, torturous death. Animals are cruel, but not deliberately, not artistically cruel the way human beings are. On my, on my I don't know why, actually, but on my um, Instagram feed, I get these pictures, these videos of praying mantis mantises or mantai, praying whatever they call them, mantises, devouring insects alive. It's pretty horrible. But <coughs> uh, there was one picture come up recently of a lion devouring a gazelle, and the gazelle was alive, and the, the lion had the gazelle by his claws and was biting the, the, the gazelle's derriere, and had bitten a big hole into the back of the, of the gazelle, and the gazelle's looking round at the lion. But you could tell he wasn't taking it personally. He kind of knew lions got to eat too. Kind of wish it wasn't me, but you know, such is life. It's the circle of life. Q. Elton John. But the lion is not wicked. He's not enjoying torturing the gazelle. It's just his way of doing lunch. But human beings, we enjoy hurting other people. Sometimes those we love the most. The late George MacLeod minister from the, the island of Iona, said this, Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. We crucified him there, and we wanted to. The Jews demanded it. Religious man and the Romans, Pilate, consented to it. Judicial man, civic man. The Romans and the, and the Jews here 
giving him over to it because it's a symbolism of the whole world. Man religious at his best religiously and man at his best politically. And we gave the Son of God over to the cross because we wanted to. No other venue would, would, be, would provide a sufficient backdrop for man to display what he really thought of God. But why the cross, though? Why did the Father not stop him? Donald McLeod memorably, and he's talking here about the liberals. The liberals talk about, like Steve Chalk, this British minister, who speaks of the cross. He says the cross is God showing how much He loves us, but not by punishing the Son in our place. That would be salvation by divine child abuse. How could God who commands others to forgive others their sins. Just forgive your enemies. How could God demand a blood sacrifice? That would be salvation by child, divine child abuse, he says. And McLeod says this, men speak of the immorality of the theory of the atonement. That's short-sighted. The real immorality, he's speaking tongue-in-cheek here, the real immorality lies in the facts at face glance, first glance, the cross is immoral. There the innocent suffers at God's hands. There God's Son is destroyed at God's hands. Let's not sentimentalize it in the hymn, Some Green Hill Far Away. No, MacLeod says, it's the scene of the greatest atrocity in history. Calvary is quite literally a shambles. God's lamb is being slaughtered on a garbage heap outside the city in darkness by a brutal soldiery, and God is responsible. McLeod continues, what right had God to crucify His Son? The cross itself, he says, needs redemption, because as Donald Bailey put it, the crucifixion might well seem to be the final reductio ad absurdum of the belief that the world is governed by a gracious providence. How could God allow the cross? Men did it because they hated Christ. How could God not just allow it, but God do it? He's the one delivering Christ up. The same verb used of Judas, he paradidomied Christ, he betrayed Christ, is used by the Father. He paradidomied him, he delivered him up. If you like, he betrayed him over to Pilate and the Jews to crucify him. How could the father do that to his son? And if the father did that to his son, how can you believe in a gracious providence holding the universe together? And the answer is very simple. The cross is a place for men to show what they thought of God, but the cross is also a place for God to show what he thinks of sin. God could choose to love a sinner like you and me, but God cannot, God cannot appear to turn a blind eye on sin. It'd be easier for you to watch a video of a man abusing a little girl and feel nothing than for God to feel nothing and do nothing in the sight of human sin. But God commands you to forgive your enemy. Why can't God forgive his enemy? Because you're not God. You're not the judge of the universe. You're just a private citizen. And you forgive your enemy because God is the judge, and God promises vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. Leave that to me. 
your job is forgiveness. It'd be impossible for any human being to, to, to be going about getting vengeance, an eye for an eye, a, a tooth for a tooth. We'd all be toothless and blind, getting our own back. We couldn't ever write the scales of human history. Only God is all of the facts. Only God is all the power. Only God is all the justice. And God just can't let sin rattle on through the universe unanswered as if it wasn't worthy of an answer. Would you watch a police show on TV if the criminal was never caught in the end? Of course not. There's a thirst in the heart of men for justice. In our marriages, why do you fight with your wife and your husband? The reason you fight is because somehow in your own mind, the way you remembered things, you weren't quite as bad as they thought you were, and they're not treating you as well as you think they should, and it's not fair. You're like a little toddler. It's not fair that you would speak to me this way. It's the cry for justice that drives our… Even when we're wrong, we still think, it's not, I'm not quite that bad, or you're not, you're not, you don't understand me well enough. It's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. There's a human yearning for justice, and you magnify that by infinity, remove all of the selfishness, and you have the heart of God, an infinite yearning, a demand that sin be seen as sin, and evil be dealt with as evil, and for God to do nothing about sin, for God just to brush it under the carpet and say, we'll pretend that didn't happen, would be betraying His own dignity as the judge of all the earth who must do what is right. And so, God's got two choices. He can damn the sinner, or He can forgive the sinner. But if he forgives the sinner, he must do it justly. He must do it in a way that honors sin as sin in all of its horror and darkness. And so there's no… Once God decided to love you, once God determined to take your damnation off the table, He had to give that damnation to somebody else. Someone else had to volunteer to take your room and your stead. that in Him, God could show what He really thinks of your sin. How can, God, how can God do that? How can God punish Jesus for my sins? Because Jesus takes Himself into such close union with me that in the mind of God's eye, like a husband and wife, we actually become one flesh, one spirit. And my sins become His, as surely as your spouse's credit card debts become yours, in the union that exists at the core of that joint credit agreement. And Christ took your debts as not just yours, but as His. And by the same logic, He gives you all of His righteousness. And so, on the cross, God is just and the justifier. He justifies the ungodly by condemning the innocent and thereby He shows what He really thinks of our sin, and He really deals with our sin as our sin deserves. And so He can forgive you without any sense of, but what about justice? Isn't that why you find forgiveness so difficult? What about justice? How can I forgive this person who betrayed me, who wronged me so deeply and so hurtfully? And you try and forgive them, but there's this little voice, what about justice? It's not fair. It's not fair. 
And on the cross, God has justice as He sends His Son. And the, fa- and the Son, so in love with His Father's vision of justice, and so in love with His Father's people, that the Son goes as the Father's servant to become our sin, so that the Father can show you, offer you and me not just mercy, but a just mercy. And Paul is describing the beauty of Jesus who humbled Himself to that by becoming obedient to that mission, to the point of death, even death on the cross, where men would show what they really thought of God, and where God would show what He really thought of sin. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, and you've heard that now. You can no longer, you can no longer claim plausible ignorance. You're going to walk away from God offering to take your damnation, to become your damnation, and you say, no, I hate you so much, I'd rather reject your son that I might still live out my life on this earth hating you. You'd be your own judge. What should God do with you at the end of your miserable little life when you've turned your back on his love? What choice will he have? He who did not spare his own son, will he spare you? When his son came dressed him in my sins, he was not spared. When you come to God in your own sins, having rejected his love your whole life, what will you receive but his wrath? Have mercy upon yourself and reconsider the lovely Jesus who stands here ready to be your Savior. Come to him. He'll not cast you out. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, his beauty, his beauty, his humility. Make us more like him. Forgive us, O God, for being so self-centered, especially in our homes. And give us his light, his love, and a little bit of his glory, that we might deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. In Jesus' name, amen.